is Our American Stories, where we love to tell stories about people from all walks of life. Our executive producer, Jesse Edwards, brings us the story of a professional prankster whose favorite target was the national news media. Today's liberated woman can be summed up or epitomized as a braless vegetarian with hairy legs and armpits. <laughs> and that's the one and only Alan Abel, prankster, hoaxer, hacker, and proud purveyor of fake news. He was responsible for duping the media into fabricated press conferences, faking his own death, and starting media campaigns for imaginary organizations like CINA, the Society for Indecency to Naked Animals. <laughs> we'll get to that later, but first, you really got to hear this guy in action. Posing as a man named Jim Rogers, media hoaxer Alan Abel founded a fake organization called Citizens Against Breastfeeding that sought to abolish this supposed act of immorality. He claimed that breastfeeding would lead to drug use later in life. Here he is on live television, arguing on behalf of a totally made-up topic. Should women be allowed to breastfeed in public? One of our guests tonight says absolutely not. Jim Rogers is the East Coast spokesman for Citizens Against Breastfeeding. And Leslie Burby is the vice president of ProMom. So Jim, let's start with you. What's wrong with breastfeeding in the open? Is it too sexy? Our position is, after 22,000 respondents have been interviewed using primarily the Minnesota Multifacic Personality Profile, many youngsters grow up to become, shall we say, uh, antisocial because of the long breastfeeding period when they are addicted to the mother's breast and they have this oral gratification need that manifests itself into smoking, drinking, and in one instance, Monica Lewinsky, who was breastfed until she was four years old. Leslie, do you have uh, any reaction to what Jim is saying? Well, with due respect, um, had I known that Jim was going to be on the show, I don't know that I would have agreed to appear. And here's another example of the kind of shenanigans that Alan Abel could execute. He managed to gather all of the news people in New York City to a fake press conference about a fictitious lottery winner. They threw dollar bills out of a hotel window, served champagne, and even hired an actress to play the part of the supposed $35 million prize winner. Every TV news station and newspaper in the city showed up and covered the faux news in full detail. Her name is Charlie Taylor, and tonight the 30-year-old cosmetologist is the single winner of the $35 million lottery jackpot. Lucky Charlie showed News 4's Howard Thompson a photocopy of that winning ticket. 30-year-old Charlie Taylor has probably given her last manicure and facial. The Dobbs Ferry cosmetologist is the lucky winner of last night's $35 million lottery. Still giddy, the reality of her new life has not yet set in. <laughs> I flipped. I freaked. That's great. It's great. Was there any particular method that you chose in, in picking those particular numbers? No, I, I, <laughs> I, it's a funny thing, I had a dream. You had a dream about the numbers? Yeah, yeah, I had a dream. So that's what made me pick the numbers. The news media didn't even catch on to the fact that the entire event was a ruse until days later, forcing reporters all over the country to make retractions on the air. The event even made it as far as the desk of Tom Brokaw. Everyone loves a winner, of course. By now, lotteries are old news in this country, but big winners, well, they still attract a lot of attention. And when the news got out that a New York woman had won a fortune in the state lottery, reporters were all over the story. And what a story it was. 
In 1987, Alan Abel created a fake Iranian arms merchant who supposedly made $6 million in a commission on the sale of U.S. arms to Iran. He then arranged the press conference that was attended by all of the major media. The story was never questioned, and it wound up on the national news. And in the rush of events in the Iran scandal, a strange story in New York today. I received $6 million for my participation in uh, this affair. Mehdi Baramani. He says he's an Iranian who made $6 million on the sale of U.S. arms to Iran, and he wants now to give it back. So far, we've only heard three of Alan Abel's elaborate media hoaxes. There are many others to get to, and some that we just can't because we don't have enough time. It's a testament to just how many hoaxes he pulled off over the years. He is relentless. The amount of time, energy, and dedication that it takes to pull off just one of these stunts is remarkable. It's one thing to book a fake interview on the news. Just about anybody could do it. It takes a completely different breed of animal altogether to book the interview, show up in person, look down the barrel of a TV camera, and say that you think that the mother-child bond during breastfeeding is somehow an immoral act. This guy is on a whole nother level. But why does he do it? His years of tireless dedication to his craft of tomfoolery certainly hasn't made him rich or famous. Why would he go through such lengths just to get one over on the media? While literally marching to the beat of his own drum on a street corner, Alan Abel himself tells us why he does what he does. I like to think of my hoaxes as having a message. And I also feel kind of comfortable with the idea that it's an opportunity for me to perform. I'm a performer, I'm a writer, I direct, I do a lot of things, but the opportunities to perform are limited. The talk shows, the radio, television, newspaper interviews, it's a conduit to my audience, the public. Here's another one of the many media stunts that got Alan national news attention. He conned the national media into believing a story about a kid selling off body parts to pay off his student debts. It is a decision most of us probably could not even imagine, selling a lung or a kidney for money to live. A man so desperate, so in need of money, that he's putting his body parts up for sale. He says he's a college graduate who's been out of work over a year, is 15 grand in debt, and is about to be kicked out of his apartment. I was just going over trying to figure out what do I have of value. I don't have a car. And out of all the things I own, this is pretty much the most valuable thing I have. And you think your reasoning is that you own these organs and therefore you should be allowed to sell them? Well, I think so. Tom won't give out his last name or any other information because he says what he's doing is illegal. Well, that's what I've been told, but I might be able to work around it by doing it as a non-returnable loan. And again, days later, journalists all over the country began to realize that they'd been had. That 28-year-old who offered to sell a kidney or lung for $25,000 had no intention of parting with either. It turns out he was an actor just playing a part. A veteran media hoaxer, Alan Abel, has owned up to orchestrating the scam. And that's just the tip of the iceberg in the prankster story of Alan Abel. When we come back, some of his best hoaxes ever perpetuated on live TV. Don't go anywhere. This is Our American Stories.
This is Our American Stories, and we continue with the story of professional prankster Alan Abel. Let's get back to Jesse. Newspaper columnist Phil Reisman remembers his early days in journalism and his dealings with Alan Abel. One day, he took the bait by accident after finding a sensational advertisement in the back of a newspaper. Alan Abel was my first real lesson in journalism, I can tell you that. I was in in desperate uh, need and want of a byline. I wanted to get a story in this paper. And I remember, I don't know how how I uh, actually found out about this. I might have been just perusing the white pages of the Manhattan phone book. Just out by accident, I found an entry called Omar's School for Beggars. Now I have with me this evening Mr. Omar. Omar is the founder and owner of Omar's School for Begging, which is an institution that teaches the fine art of creative panhandling which I thought, this is unbelievable. And this is like in the 70s when people were really out of work and it was like, you know, the city was, uh, New York City was in a drop-dead mode from Gerald Ford, you know. Um, there were homeless people everywhere. So I thought, well, this, this is really amazing and, and probably fits into what's going on right now in the world. There's no help for people in this position. There's a broad spectrum of America that is faced with this problem. I mean, there are hundreds of thousands of men who have served loyally for years and years to their companies, have been put out on the streets. They're garbage. I bought it hook, line, and sinker, and I wrote the story about this guy who runs his panhandler's school. Here is Omar. Welcome. Years went by, and I began to realize that he was pulling this hoax over and over and over again to other people. And I, I started saving clips, and I had built up a file on Abel. I said, this guy, i got to watch for him. It was incredible how he repeated the same hoaxes over and over and over again, even though they would be exposed, and then he would do it again. Perhaps Alan Abel's most famous media hoax over the years was his campaign to put clothes on animals through the Society for Indecency to Naked Animals, or Senna for short. In 1959, Abel wrote a satirical story about this imaginary organization for the Saturday Evening Post, but editors rejected it. So he then transformed his story into a series of press releases that garnered media attention. The group used the language and rhetoric of moralists for the aim of clothing naked animals, including pets, barnyard animals, and large wildlife. Slogans such as, decency today means morality tomorrow, and a nude horse is a rude horse were offered. Abel persuaded the actor Buck Henry to play the group president, G. Clifford Prout, Abel played the group vice president. The Society to Clothe All Naked Animals for the Sake of Decency, or SINA, S-I-N-A. SINA received so much press. It was much ado about nothing in my own mind, but it, it's kind of like, uh, maybe this is not a good analogy, but it's kind of like someone who drops a match and suddenly you have a, a, a forest fire. A flood tide of filth is engulfing our country in the form of newsstand obscenity. It was a, a commentary on censorship. If we're going to censor books in the library that might be, seem salacious, then uh, why don't we uh, censor those animals who are out there being naked? And that's what allegorical satire is all about. But it was very well done, too well done, because it obscured that message. I don't think anybody got it. Promoting Cinna gave me the understanding that with very little funds and uh, very few props, with a straight face, you can convince America and the media that you have this 
crazy movement. Apparently, a lot of people failed to realize that this was all just a bunch of nonsense. Some subscribed to the newsletter, opening local chapters all over the country of moral activists who thought it was a good idea to put pants on a horse. <laughs> Not everyone caught on to the joke. I like to think that poking fun uh, at something is really just a cover. It's just the, the skin, uh, the surface. Underneath that surface or skin is a message, a moral message. In the case of Sinna, right away it's contradictory because we're for it in the title, and yet I was against it. So that's a clue that there must be something wrong here, that it could be a joke. Another one of Alan's bizarre pranks on national TV was when he paid a group of actors to attend a taping of the Phil Donahue show back in the 1980s and pretend to faint. It was a great sight that night on the news because the headlines in the newspapers were Audience Flees Donahue Show. It was live television with a fastly fading studio audience for the Phil Donahue Show today. Combination of the lights, the possible anxiety of uh, the t live television, and the heat uh, caused one woman to faint. And then four others fainted. People started to figure out who Alan Abel was and some weren't too happy about his trickery. Messages for whoever is running this organization. Your organization is considered born on the shores of ignorance, and your group is fed by the spoon of stupidity. You guys are the biggest bunch of sick morons I have ever met in my life. Um, I think all of you need long psychotherapy. Bye. Some people were sick of it, and the news media was beginning to get tired of it as well. At that time, in the early 70s, the media was more considerate of practical joking and utilizing the media as a conduit to the public. But as the years went by and the competition got greater, the news got more serious and the pressure was on to come up with hard news factually, quickly, there was no time to fool around or play around. So the breed of reporters who came out of the 80s and 90s were guys and gals who just uh, didn't want to have fun. No way. With the people in the media getting wiser, a guy like Alan Abel just doesn't stop. He went on to act in daytime TV shows like Mari Pulvich and Jerry Springer at the time. In the documentary about his life called Kane Raising Abel, Alan's own daughter narrates what life was like living with a guy like this for a father. Can you imagine being this trickster's kid? You are trying to tell me that that child has eaten nothing but nothing, hair? One time he even dragged me along on one of his appearances. He was posing as Dr. Herbert Strauss, a firm believer in the notion that people should consume human hair because it's high in protein. Jennifer, do, would you like a hair sandwich? He tried to get me to eat a hair sandwich on camera, but I refused, even though we had been rehearsing it for weeks, and I knew there was hair in only one side of the bun. It was actually my mom's hair inside the sandwich. What does it taste hair? like? Uh, it just, just, just tastes uh, a bit like uh, a hamburger. Even though my dad enjoyed doing these types of TV appearances, he wanted to keep pulling off his own pranks. This is a hair pie made from a dark-haired woman. But it wasn't always about national attention and elaborate hoaxes that kept Alan's wheels turning. There's a video of him online on local cable access TV for over 20 minutes going on about the history of the world as told through the snare drum. Here's a small piece of that speech. My name is Alan Abel, and I would like to tell you about the relationship of the snare drum and its effect on civilization today. Many people have asked, where did this drum really come from? Well, last year, an archeologist friend of mine went to Egypt, and after poking among the pyramids for over six months, he discovered that this particular drum actually came from a music store 
in Greenwich, Connecticut. However, the drum does date back to the year 4000 BM, which of course is before Madonna. Now in that year, we had cavemen who used to use the drum as a means of communication. They would first of all cut down a tree, hollow out the log, cover the end of that log with the skins of neighboring tribes, and then beat on the end of that log with an arm or a leg from one of the tribes. And of course, we developed our first log rhythms that way. Now, we would have one tribe talk to another tribe by using a drum book. They actually had a drum book. For example, let's have a woman in a tribe over here who wants to talk to a lady in a tribe three miles away. She would look up her number in the drum book, and it might be three, two, one, roll twice. So she would send the number. Her friend would hear the, the number on the drum and know that she was wanted on the drum. On January 2nd of 1980, both the New York Times and the New York Daily News reported the death of the famous media hoaxer, Alan Abel. The Times provided a flattering account of his career. Unfortunately for these papers, there was a small problem. Abel was very much alive. The newspapers learned this when Abel held a press conference the next day in which he revealed that the news of his death was a hoax engineered by himself and a team of 12 accomplices, some of whom had sent the false story to the media while others had acted to confirm it. Abel explained that he perpetuated the hoax for publicity specifically to publicize the fact that he was a professional hoaxer. And that, my friends, is the one and only Alan Abel. Marching to the beat of his own drum, He's dedicated his entire life to pranks, hoaxes, and fake news, doing it better than perhaps anyone else, just for kicks. I can't think of a better way to spend a life well-lived. Can you? VD has reached epidemic proportions. Ten cents is a small price indeed to pay for this sanitary sanctuary, a private John in public. This is Our American Stories. I'm Jesse Edwards. our American stories and we're back with one of our favorite topics random acts of kindness you can find all sorts of these uplifting stories at randomactsofkindness.org it's a great resource an inspiring one to share with your kids your friends and make sure to leave your story there and that's what we hope to do here is you hear some good ones populate theirs Here's a story from Faleo, California in the San Francisco Bay Area where an unexpected act of kindness has made this teen's commute a heck of a lot easier. This teen had just finished his shift at night in Benicia when an officer spotted him walking home. He says he thought he was in trouble first when the officer stopped him, but then they started talking. 
I've been walking far distances since I was about 10. 18-year-old Jordan Duncan has been walking to work since May after his car broke down, and he won't ask for rides. I don't want to feel like I'm a burden to people, so I take the initiative to handle myself and my own ways to where I need to go from point A to point B. Duncan lives in Vallejo and works in Benicia. It's about a two-hour commute each way on foot, up and down hills, through city streets to avoid the highway. Four hours all together. I got used to the walk and, you know, it's not hard to walk. It just happened to be uh, going down industrial when I saw him walking. Benicia Police Corporal Kirk Keffer stopped Duncan last Saturday. He said, so you walk from work to Vallejo? I was like, you know, if I have no other way. At that point, I was like, well, once you jump in, I'll give you a ride home. The two got to know each other. Keffer talked about life as an officer, and Duncan shared his aspirations to be an officer with the CHP. Keffer was so impressed with the team's work ethic, he and the members of the Benicia Police Officers Association surprised Duncan at work on Monday with a new mountain bike. There's not a lot of... Uh... 18-year-olds out there that have this dedication, this work ethic, and we just wanted to make sure that he knew that how much I actually appreciated what he's doing. Duncan was shocked. You know, not all officers are bad. He's quickly learned how to handle the bike, and it cuts his travel time in half. This bike is my best friend, my best friend right here. I love this bike. Duncan is extremely grateful, and after hearing about his desire to be an officer, we're heard, we've learned that the Benicia Police Department is working to give him a ride-along in the coming weeks. And as he said, not all cops are bad. And again, you're not going to see that in the national news. Maybe a nice little local feature. But never, ever in the national news. And never eight minutes or ten minutes or twenty minutes, let alone two weeks of coverage. And again, we talk often here about law enforcement and the outliers and the bad cops, because there are plenty, but not nearly as many as the media would have you think. And I would bet it's less than 1% or even less than that. And now we move to Pensacola, Florida, where a Marine was honored for helping a fellow triathlete. The service our country's Marines provide on and off the battlefield isn't done for the recognition. But 19-year-old Marine Private First Class Matthew Morgan was recognized for the compassion he showed a young triathlete who lost his leg to cancer. This is what being a Marine is about. And I'm really glad that, you know, if I do anything, I, I get to help show that. Since losing his leg to bone cancer, 11-year-old Ben Baltz has been running triathlons and other athletic competitions throughout Northwest Florida. On October 7th, Baltz was running in the Sea Turtle Tri-Kids Triathlon. He was halfway through the run portion when his prosthetic leg failed and he fell. Morgan and another Marine were volunteering at a water stand nearby and ran to help. I just got there first. When I got there, he'd already, you know, thrown himself up and was continuing to try and fix his prosthetic. And I asked him, do you need help? And he looked at me and said, no, I'm going to finish. But Morgan says Baltz couldn't get his prosthesis back on. He knew he wasn't going to be able to reattach it because he was missing a screw. And I got in front of him and I said, you know, pop on. For the last half of the event, Morgan carried Baltz on his back, trekking across beach sand and then crossing the finish line. As fellow Marines watched, Congressman Jeff Miller presented Morgan with a medal for his achievement. Despite his act of kindness, PFC Morgan says he doesn't consider himself a hero. He was just simply doing what any other Marine would do. 
I was just the first Marine there. Every every Marine says they would have done the exact same thing. Ben's story is a perfect inspiration to Marines, to everyone for that matter, and, and how he perseveres and continues on even when, you know, not everything goes his way. Boy, I'd love to get both of those guys on the air, by the way. That's just such a good story. I'd want to go longer with it. Fantastic. Next up, a teen from Salisbury Township, Pennsylvania, arrives to his first day of high school in style. A fleet of more than 16 bikers escorted Sean Mayer on the way to his first day of class. Sean has Down syndrome and has been bullied at school. So this year, a local motorcycle club picked the teen up at his house at 6 a.m. to show their support. Sean rode on the back of a bike wearing a helmet and vest and arrived at school ready to tackle the day. Just before he walked into the building, Sean high-fived his friends who all clearly have his back. About 100 bikers were in attendance. It's unbelievable the hearts that, that you guys and gals have to come out here and it really truly shows what the community's all about. And last but not least, a complete stranger in Victorville, California, displays jaw-dropping generosity. 86-year-old Dale Stoner is going to change the life of eight complete strangers by paying for their full college tuition. He surprised the first two students, Ronaldo Lopez and Tenancy Vargas, with the news. This makes me feel really great inside. I was so shocked at the moment that I just started crying. With all of Dale's own kids grown, he worked hard all his life, and a large portion of his money was earned from real estate. He wanted to help others. To me, it's it's all very simple. The money is there. Uh, There's no need on my side of my, my kids. And uh, so I just said, well. Dale and his wife didn't know how to pick the students, so they looked in the phone book to discover a high school. I talked to our counseling office and our two counselors and our leadership team, and they pulled two names, and they said, these two kids are deserving. Now these two students are heading to college, only focusing on their education. Dale hopes others will pay it forward after hearing about his kind gesture. I want to him to see me graduate so that he knows like he didn't do this just for nothing. You bet. That kid's going to graduate. That's for sure. And one last story, and it's just personal. One of the guys who helped build our beautiful studio here, JJ, a great craftsman, really great worker with his hands. He's had some tough times. His, his wife left. She had drug problems. He's trying to raise a child by himself. And he was working for a fellow who just wasn't paying him holding back his taxes, just he worked for a bad employer. And so he finally extricates himself from that situation, and then his truck breaks down. And a worker who works with his hands without a truck, my goodness, that's a tough situation. And he's sitting down on the porch with a friend of his who's hit some good times. He's a developer, and he's made some money. And he's telling his friend about the truck and this and that. Next day, his buddy comes up to him, throws him some car keys to a white, brand-new Ford F-150. And he says, take this. And J.J. goes, well, thanks. You know, it's about a week. I'll have the other car fixed. He goes, no, you don't understand. Take this. It's yours. You're a good guy. Take care. And he just walks out. And J.J. just, he calls me up crying. And he said, man, people are just so generous. And they are. And this happens all the time, folks. 
So when folks are trying to tell you there's no good in the world, there's no God in the world, there's no love in the world, well, turn off the channel. Turn off that person. Find new people. Find new friends. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories. This is Our American Stories, and here we have, coming up, one of our regular features, Faith and her regular visits to the villages in Florida, the largest retirement community in the country. And this time she spoke with Dwayne Woods, an Air Force veteran who recently went on an honor flight. The honor flight program raises money to take veterans to D.C. to experience all the memorials and monuments there. At the end of every honor flight, people await the veterans' arrival home, as if they're coming home from war. Let's listen to Faith's conversation with Dwayne. Dwayne invited me in and greeted me with a hug and a kiss on the cheek. He served me some ice water and he sat down in his rocking chair and began telling me all about his experiences on the honor flight. My guardian picked me up at the house, 1.30, guardian runs the American Legion. Uh, there was all kinds of people out there to greet us when we were leaving. Family, family and friends. Went inside the American Legion and there's a big table sitting there. And there was a um, 40 handmade quilts. And you pick out the quilt you want and uh, bagged it up and had it waiting for you when you got back there. I picked up one with the uh, Air Force insignia on it. And then from the American Legion, they headed off to Orlando International Airport. When they arrived, a surprise awaited them. And by the way, there was just an enormous amount of people in in Orlando in the airport, too, greeting us. Thank you for your service. If I heard that once, I heard that at least a thousand times on that day. How did you feel? Oh, you you, like you want to drip a tear. So? What exactly did Dwayne do in the military? He served in the Korean War, referred to often as the Forgotten War. The war lasted from June 1950 to 1953. Nearly 40,000 American soldiers died in the war. Dwayne joined a few months after it all started. I went in 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 November of 1950, and I went into... I was in the Michigan National Guard. I joined it uh, in 1948, and I started college in 47. And uh, uh, in 48, in early 48, Congress put back the, the draft, and I was in I was in college, and several of my friends 
did the same thing. We joined the Michigan National Guard because that hopefully would keep us out of going on active duty so he could stay in school. He was drafted, like many of his peers. After attending pilot training, he fell below the required minimum to become a pilot. So I would have had a choice at that time. I could have gone right back to school, gone right back to, to civilian life, or I could uh, go on to navigation school. Well, we, most of us went on to navigation school. I went. That was down in Houston, Texas, and I was in there, uh, and I graduated out of there in November, which was the same time I'd have finished out of pilot school if I'd have stayed. But I graduated, got my wings, got my commission, and. Uh, I uh, went into uh, combat crew training school in Virginia at uh, Langley Air Force Base. I was there 10 weeks, and we come out of there. That started in, that started in uh, late November, and we finished up in February, and, uh, and right on into Korea. And once he got to Korea, the flight missions began. He and his crew flew dangerous night missions flying without any lights on or inside their plane. As soon as they took off, it went dark. Their goal was to empty all their ammunition. Mr. Woods made it through his tour without any major injury. But that doesn't mean he didn't have some close calls. We were temporarily flying out of Pusan, which is down uh, at the... uh, in the lower part of, right down near the coast, the lower lower end of the peninsula, and uh, and and close closer to the Sea of Japan than the Sea of uh, than than the Yellow Sea. Uh, the sea of Japan is in between Korea and Japan, uh, and we were uh, we were temporarily flying while they're doing a little repair work on our runways up at Kunsan, and uh, we were performing our heavy maintenance on our planes, engine maintenance. What a, at a place on the west coast of Japan called Miho. And we were taken, our crew was, was shuttling this plane over because we had a sick engine. And uh, so what we did, we took off that day and with both, both engines running, the good one and the one not so good, and with the whole idea you climb up to altitude, then you shut the bad one down and you fly on into Japan on one engine and then we'd crank up the bad engine for the landing. That was that's the that was the plan for everything. Okay, we we took off clear day, just a few billowy clouds, it was a beautiful day. Climbing straight up over the airport, five thousand feet. And the good engine backfired. Declared May Day. You can see the field underneath it, right over the field and declared May Day, and they give us the, they cleared the whole field, and and we came, lined up on final approach, and he forgot to drop the landing gear. So I reached over and hit the switch myself. We were down there 30, 40 feet off the ground. After crashing into some power lines, it seemed that he and his team had dodged a bullet. The, the pilot ended up with a, with a uh, broken arm, and I ended up with a, a black eye and a bruised arm, like nothing. And uh, so 
I guess it was pretty fortunate that considering what we went through there, all five of us lived. So what was going on in your head? I don't want to die this way. <laughs> I guess that's probably the big thing. But you really, you, you really have no control at that stage. You really don't. Obviously not all who have served make it home. But for those who have, the honor flight does their best to show their appreciation. To show our appreciation. Duane was being honored for his bravery on those night flights. For fighting and nearly dying in America's forgotten war. Now, let's hear what the rest of the trip was like for Duane. They flew from Orlando to D.C., where yet another welcome committee was awaiting for him. We got up into the terminal, and there was probably 12 or 1,500 people out there to greet us. Now, this is, this is 7.30, 8 o'clock in the morning. It's early. But uh, including, there was about 20 from, uh, from Fort Meade, which was a, uh, it's a, it's a military installation and used for quite a bit for national security. There was about 20 Navy people there, men and women, dressed all in their dress whites, just for us, just to greet us. And that was what, on all the way down through the terminal, we got out to the buses. And there again, we were back on Stars and Stripes again. We had a police escort on a motorcycle. They told us the only ones that get a police escort is the honor flight and the president. <laughs> the veterans visited Arlington Cemetery, toured the lawn, and visited all the memorials and monuments that DC had to offer. Funny enough, one of the sites that really stuck in his mind wasn't a monument at all. There was an enormous amount of, of probably 10 to 15 year olds. School's out. And you know how these schools, uh, when school's out, they, that's a common spot. They'll take, a, they'll take them into Washington for a week. And, uh, and young kids as well as older ones. And they were just as polite, I'm telling you. And thank you for your service. I hear that constantly. I was so impressed with the youth that we've got in this country. You know, you read the bad stuff. You don't read the good stuff because they don't publish the good stuff. You know, because I guess they don't sell newspapers. You know how that goes. So they, all they do is publish the bad. And you, you think, my God, is the whole country this way? It's not. It's not. 99.9% of them are good people. And that's what we saw. What a positive report on the youth of America. After seeing everything that DC had to offer, the honor flight returned to Orlando. And despite it being nearly one o'clock in the morning, there were still people waiting for their arrival. We get off the plane, and at the top of the ramp, of course, there's tons of people out there. I mean, to tell you, there's still another 500 people probably out there to greet us. But there was a bagpiper, one bagpiper. And he, he piped his tune as we come up the, the ramp. And then he, he led us all the way to the buses by piping all the way. <laughs> Was it emotional? Oh, yeah, all the way, very much, very emotional because of the fact that they're, they're showing appreciation. Constantly, that's what they're doing with, with their greetings and, and their presence. 
This meant the world to Dwayne and all the veterans that were able to participate. We can never thank our veterans enough for all that they've done for our country and all that the current veterans do. Thank you, Dwayne, for your service. This is Faith Garcia from Our American Stories reporting to you from the Villages, Florida. And thank you, Dwayne. Thank you, Faith, as always. And that little bit of appreciation, you can hear it in Dwayne's voice. Old, moved, and beautiful. Dwayne's story, Dwayne Woods, here on Our American Stories. American Stories, and it's time for our American Dreamers segment. And in the past, we featured the life of Fred Smith, building FedEx from nothing into, well, something. And Bernie Marcus, a kind supporter of this show, and he and a couple of his friends built Home Depot from scratch and wrote a book called Built from Scratch. And we love entrepreneur stories. We even did Mario Andretti, an hour on him and his life, because my goodness, what a life it was. And it was an entrepreneur's story because he owned a, a racing car uh, company, ultimately, and employed a lot of people. And joining us today, we love to do small businesses, mid-sized businesses. It's quite a story. Joining us today is Don Lafriti. We're going to start from the beginning. Don owns now 77 restaurants in Arizona, Arkansas, Illinois, Kansas, Missouri, Oklahoma, and Texas. But she grew up in humble beginnings and Dawn, thanks so much for joining us. Oh, it's an honor to be here. Thanks for inviting me. You bet. Now, before we get into the business story, Dawn, we always start, no matter who we talk to here on this show, with the, the childhood, the parents, the location, uh, the early life. Uh, and talk, talk to us about your, your parents and where you grew up and the circumstances under which you grew up. So I grew up in uh, Orange County, California, and... Uh, my father was not much of a provider. My mother always was providing for the family. My father just wasn't uh, the perfect human being. So my mom worked long hours to feed us, put a roof over our head. But I started working at a very young age, babysitting, taking odd jobs, anything I could to make a few bucks. And I always had the pressure um, as a child as to wondering if the bills were going to be paid, if there was enough food on the table, if we were going to make ends meet. And I remember thinking as a, as a young girl, you know, one day I just want to own my own company so I don't have to worry about this. I want to be in charge of my own destiny. So I always knew that working was something I was going to have to do. I wasn't going to get married and have babies and have a husband. I was going to work and I was going to make my way in the world. And so when I turned 16... I got a job uh, at Taco Bell right around the corner where I could walk, and I saved up enough money to get a car so that I could get a job at Denny's. And at the time, my mother was a district manager for Denny's, and I just felt that it would be a great stepping stone for me. I could waitress. I could earn tips. So that's what I did. I got a job. I was a hostess. I saw that waitresses were making a lot more money. And I begged and I begged and I begged to be a waitress. And I was pretty young. I was 16 and a half at the time. And the manager would say to me, no, we need you as a hostess. You're such a great hostess. 
we can't make you a waitress. And I just pressed on him until he finally gave me the chance, and I became the best waitress he had had. I made a lot of money in tips. I saved them all uh, in hopes of buying my own business one day, of which I didn't know at the time what it would be. And back in the early 80s, uh, Denny's bought a chain of restaurants called Hobo Joe's and Colony Kitchens. And there was one restaurant in Globe, Arizona. It was a tiny little mining town about 80 miles east of Phoenix. Um, And they had a restaurant there that they didn't want to convert to a Denny's. And a manager friend of mine and I, we got wind of this store, and we ended up buying it off of very little savings credit cards. We took every penny we could off credit cards. We went and we applied 5000 here, 5000 there. Bought our first restaurant off credit cards. Did well with it. And then in 1984, oil went bust in West Texas. And Denny's Corporate called and said, we have four dog stores. Would you like to take a shot at them? <laughs> and that was really, I think, the big moment in you know, realizing, you know, I'm I'm going to be my my own business owner. I, I I was, you know, with the first restaurant in Arizona, but there was something bigger about this. This was I was moving my life. Um, this was a, this was four restaurants at once. Yep. And it it was a very exciting time. Although you take a girl from Orange County, California, and you put her in Midland, Texas, <laughs> and there's a little bit of a culture shock and a huge learning curve. Oh my goodness! And I know Midland well. I've been there many times. It's uh, it's the heart of the oil patch. It's the Permian Basin, and right now they've got some of the biggest oil finds in world history there. But when gas prices go down. Oh, my goodness. Right. So it's feast or famine. It is feast or famine. And even the most rambunctious multimillionaire oil man doesn't look like the same man uh, when oil prices are down, Don. Well, it's it, really it's something. True. It's so true. And it, even to this day, you know, I've, I've uh, been in West Texas for 30 years now. When oil's booming, I can't even get somebody to wash my windows because... They're working the oil fields or mow my grass. I mean, it's an interesting, it's an interesting city how you do business there. And you either have tons and tons of business and not enough help, or tons of help and not enough business. Right. And and the great thing about starting out in West Texas is I learned how to survive. Oh my goodness, Don! Everyone should start. It's the equivalent in West Texas because it's the equivalent of uh, Paris Island. It's like boot camp for an entrepreneur. You know, it really is. And I remember being young. I was I was very young when I started out there, and I would work seventeen hours a day just to be able to make ends meet. And it really taught me a lot. And the biggest thing it taught me is there's always going to be a rainy day. You know, there's always going to be a time when sales aren't where they should be or when costs are higher than they should be. And it really prepped me for what was to come later down in my career. Well, let's hold that thought. And when we come back on the other side, I'm going to back up just a little bit. I want to ask about what you learned working at such a young age. Very often on this show, one of the recurring themes is why we aren't having our kids working younger. So many kids aren't learning. They're learning a lot of things, but they're not necessarily learning how to put in a hard day's work. Well, I have a lot to say about that. I am sure you, Don, I am sure you do, owning 77 restaurants. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and this is our American Dreamer segment. We love doing these because, well, what you heard from Don was what you hear from all these folks. 
I, I just want to be my own boss. I want to take destiny in my own hands. And if you remember Bernie Marcus, his mother, well, she had that uh, arthritis. She couldn't move. As he said, my father just wasn't a very good provider. Sounded exactly like Dawn's circumstance. Lived in Newark, New Jersey, in a tough neighborhood. And yet at 50, started Home Depot. And that is the American dream. And that's why we love doing this American Dreamer series. This is, again, Lee Habib. This is our American story, the story of Dawn LaFrida and her remarkable rise to own 77 restaurants in this great country. More after these messages. Stories. Our American Dreamer series continues with Don LaFrida. And Don, I wanted to just backtrack a second during the break. We were just commenting about working early, starting work at a young age. And I actually think it was an advantage for you that you started young. And I don't know that any of this would have been possible had you not started working at a young age and not had to face tough circumstances. Talk a little bit about how that might have been an opportunity for you while other people might have seen it as bad luck. Well, you know, I knew I didn't have some of the options that other people had. And so, as I said to you earlier, I knew I was going to have to work. So if I wanted a car, I was going to have to work to get the car. If I wanted new clothing, if I wanted to go out to eat, anything I really wanted at that age, I had to work for. I had to work really starting much younger than 16 just to get some of the things that I might have personally wanted. So... Going out and getting a job was very empowering for me. I was finally in control of really my own money, my own destiny, what I could have, what I couldn't have, instead of someone always saying, well, we can't afford that. Or, you know, living in a household with a a parent that doesn't work and only one parent, you know, providing for three children, it was very rough times. And, you know, we all survived. And I know people have harder luck stories than I do, but... I started, as I said, working at the age of 10 and 11 to make money to buy a new dress for Easter. And so what I learned is money could buy me things. It could buy me control of my life. It could let me be in charge of where I wanted to go. And where I wanted to go was to the top. And I had hoped to go to college, and that was my wish, and I started out there, and I didn't quite make it. So I knew I just had to work extra hard to to have the things I wanted to have in life and to have a career. And we learn so often that the entrepreneurs that we've been talking to, so many of them either drop out of college, don't ever get to college. Uh, we, when we did Steve Jobs for the hour, his speech at Stanford was about him dropping out at Reed College, which he did. And then he dropped back in and took a calligraphy course, but only just auditing it. And that calligraphy course set in motion a way of thinking about space and art and beauty And he was advising these kids, look, God bless that you went to Stanford, but lots of great things happen without college. And let's talk about the flip side of this, Don, work and young people. 
Uh, you hire a lot of young people. We're going to continue with your story, but you hire a lot of young people. Talk about the work ethic now and what you're bumping up against as you go to hire people. What's the pool of workers now today like? What was oh it like gosh. 20 years ago? Oh, my gosh. It's it's just worlds different. So, And, and I'm going to tell you, I'm the mother of uh, 13-year-old twin sons, and and I want to give them everything that I didn't have. But in thinking that, I also have to think about what we're faced with today, and and it's my generation that it has caused what I think is some of the problem within the workforce, because times are a little different. We want to give our kids better. We don't necessarily make them rush out and get a job at 16. We buy them cars. We buy them cell phones. Uh, we want them to be in sports. We want them to be focusing on their homework. Well, there's really not a lot of time to go get a job. Well, for me... I didn't have a choice. I had to get a job. And I think that's part of the problem today. A, there's not enough workforce. But also, when I look back to when I bought my first restaurant, the competition was very different. I mean, there was Denny's. There were maybe a couple of other restaurants. Now there's 50 in a two- or three-mile radius, all begging for the same customer and the same employee. We all need to staff our restaurants, and we all need customers. But all of it gets a little piece of your pie. So here's what happens. When I was a server, I wouldn't even dream of calling in sick and definitely not no call, no show. Well, today, well, you know, I want to go to a concert or, you know, I'm going to go away for the weekend. I'll just not show up because I can get a job across the street with no problem because everybody's hiring. And I think that's a large part of the problem. Because you you don't you don't have the longevity you don't you, you know you can get a job anywhere so I don't think you're as dedicated. Yep. Yep. I think that's a huge 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 problem today. In addition to kids don't have to work as hard, and so when we're building in neighborhoods that are more up and coming and prominent the kids aren't having to work. Yeah, you know, when I was young, and I hate doing the the back-in-the-day stuff because we all sound so old and mean that way, but I do think there's something here. You know, I just remember all the kids I knew. If we went to do something, we weren't allowed to quit. I mean, I couldn't go back to my dad when I was working at Roy Rogers, my first job, and say, I don't want to do this anymore. I couldn't say those words to him. They wouldn't have been greeted with kindness I would have had severe consequences, and I couldn't think of not working for a job for at least a year, given it the old college try, and I better have found a different job before I talked to Dad about that job. Well, and you know what the hard part about that is for employers is we, we invest money in your training, Yep. and it becomes very costly. And I have a friend of mine who runs a company, and, he, and this was a few years back before things got really bad. He says, you know, I was interviewing someone for a job, and it was more like they were in- interviewing me. Uh, how many days off do I get? How many sick days do I get? How many times a year do I get a review? When do I get my raises? How many times can I call in sick? You know, I mean, it's like you're being interviewed instead of interviewing the in- employee. And I don't know if it's just kind of where we've evolved as a society, but I do think things need to change a little to be more balanced. And I think it's really good for kids to work. I think it gives them a sense of accomplishment. It gives them a purpose, something to look forward to, something to dream about. You know, I I always want to give things to my children, but I remember what it was like growing up to be dreaming of getting a bicycle or, 
you know, a car or even my first restaurant. And when you don't have those kind of dreams, I think you're missing out because you're not building on that. Yeah, it's so true. And we, we've spent some time on that Stanford study where they gave kids rewards, bigger rewards for certain delayed gratification, even bigger rewards. And it's turning out on a longitudinal study that the single most important characteristic for success is the ability to delay gratification. And that's the only way a dream can ever come true, Don, is if you, you stick at it and you stay at it. And by the way, I hate blaming the kids for this kind of stuff because in the end, it's the adults that created this mess, not well, the kids. you know, it, it, it is. And again, I wouldn't have been in the situation... I was in had I not been forced to by my circumstances. Yep, I had to work. You had no choice. You had no I had choice. no choice. And, and you know what? I'm grateful for every moment of it. I don't regret it. It put me on my journey, and um, I've had the most wonderful life and career with Denny's. You know, there's this one, there's a note here, and we have a bunch of quotes from you, and I know nothing makes people cringe than hearing their own quotes, but you, from one particular story about you, you said, I knew from a very young age that I would be self-employed. As a young girl, I recall sitting with my mother and saying to her, one day, I'm going to own my own company and make a lot of money. And she said to me, of course you are. Talk about that positive reinforcement of your mom, because some moms would have said, there's no way that's going to happen, sweetheart. Well, you know, I can't even begin to tell you how powerful that is. My mom's given me two very powerful things, and that is one of them. And because I thought my whole life, well, every time I felt a stumbling block, I didn't let it get me down. Of course I'm going to own my own company. Of course I'm going to be successful. I mean, I just I just believed that if my mom believed in me, you know, of course you're going to do that. My mom didn't say, well, you know, don't set your dreams too big or don't aim too high. She just said, of course you are. So... All along my path, I always thought, well, of course I am. Yep. I always thought positive about it. And those words, and we always tell people who are listening, your words matter to the people you're telling them to. We did an hour on Vince Lombardi, and we had Jerry Kramer. We had a clip from Jerry Kramer, the great All-American and All-Pro guard. And, and Lombardi was tough on Kramer. And Kramer was wondering whether he had it in him to be a pro. But he said, but one day, Coach came in the locker room, and he said, Kramer, you know why I'm so hard on you? Because you're going to be the best damn player of all time. You've got it in you. And he said, from that day forward, from that day forward, I was a changed man. And by the way, we heard this from him, Don, like 30 years after that incident. But he said it was the turning point in his life that someone believed in him that much. Well, I think, I think, I think we all have something like that. And as I mentioned to you, I have a, a second thing my mother did with me, and it is what propelled me, I think, to, to really go forward. And I, when I was buying my first restaurant, I was 23 years old, and I was a little nervous. And I thought, wow, man, there's, there's 30 people depending upon me for a job. What if, you know, what if I can't do it? What if I fail? What if, what if something goes wrong? And my mom looked at me and she says, so you start over at 26. (laughs) And I thought to myself, yeah, if I can't do it, I just start over and I keep trying. Yep. Well, that's fantastic. And and bless her heart for doing that for you, Don. And when we come back, we're going to pick up where we left off on growing this business. Because my goodness, getting those new restaurants, what a challenge for you. When we come back, the story of Don LaFrieda and the American Dreamer series that we love doing here on Our American Stories. And to hear all that we do, go to OurAmericanNetwork.org.
is Our American Stories, and we're talking with Don LaFrieda. It's our American Dreamers segment. And let's talk a little bit more about one thing that happened when you were young that mattered as you got older. While still working at Denny's, Don, you took a second job selling accounting software and learned about computers and running a business. And and so now you walk into this world of now having to manage four new stores, the ups, the downs, keeping a certain level of workforce in place, dealing with the rainy days, dealing with the surfeit of those great times and tucking some away. What part did knowing about accounting and bumping up against that accounting software play in your development? Oh, it's such a huge part. Um, Well, first off, I learned about computers. And when I was going to school, they didn't teach us that. So I got that background. But I learned about how to run a small business. When you work for a small company, you wear a lot of different hats. So I got to understand payroll, accounts payable, scheduling, billing, sales, um, a lot of different things, even just how to handle an influx of incoming mail, just a whole wide variety of um, office skills that I never had working in a restaurant. And, and I learned how to develop spreadsheets, which became instrumental in me doing forecasting and budgeting and um, helping me to accomplish a lot more in a shorter amount of time because I was working in a restaurant. I was doing all the accounting for our company. So there was there was a lot to do, and I felt very ready for it, having spent the time working in that accounting firm. And the accounting firm, or the the, uh, small software firm that I worked for, they sold accounting software to CPAs and lawyers. So when you you have to learn the software, you're learning about debits and credits and where things get posted and profit and loss statements. And I also was, you know, learning about legal software for lawyers. So I got to just learn a ton of things that I think gave me an advantage over um, other other franchisees or small business owners who, who maybe didn't have that background. Yeah, and I always pity the person who doesn't understand cash flow, too. And I'm Lebanese, so it's sort of drilled into our heads from birth. Um, we're trading people, Lebanese people. And so we know what cash flow means. We heard about it as kids, always saving enough for a rainy day, even more. Um, and that cash is king in a business because if you run out of it, boy, you're going to pay hard for it. Cash is king. And, you know, when you buy your business, um, you get your money, you buy your restaurant, well, they don't tell you when you're 23 that, well, there's uh, deposits on every electric account you have and every water account and every gas account and every sales tax account. And there's things that you don't anticipate. Yep. You think, oh, I'm buying my restaurant and I'm paying this for it. Then you walk in the door and you need to come up with an extra $100,000 or whatever the magic number is for all the deposits. And you go, oh, my gosh, take a deep breath. What am I going to do next? You bet. And so now you've got the stores in West Texas. How do you go from there and learning all the things you did in that really a, almost a battlefield? Because, And not that Midland's a battlefield, but just the ups and downs we were talking about. Uh, what were the next steps to getting to where you are today? How did you do that, Dawn? So I had I had a business partner back then, and um, we were living in West Texas, and I was incredibly homesick. And the next biggest city to where I was living, I was living outside of Midland in a town called San Angelo because it had a lake and I missed the beach. And uh, San Antonio was the next biggest city, and so I finally convinced Denny's to sell us a store in uh in San Antonio, bought one store there, 
ended up uh, converting a couple more. So it, oh, I had maybe eight or so at the time. I ended up very soon after there buying out my business partner. And then I just went on a development craze and decided that I wanted to buy out other franchisees. I wanted to look at opportunities within Denny's. I wanted to build from the ground up. I wanted to move into some other markets. I left no stone unturned. I just had a real hunger for growth. And I think I'd had it when I was with my prior business partner. But, you know, when two people have to make a decision and one is a bigger risk taker than the other – um, you're not always aligned, and I always wanted to grow and develop, I think, at a much deeper level than she did. Yeah, you know, it was interesting when we were doing Bernie Marcus's story. Bernie actually admitted that he sometimes wanted to grow too fast, and that if it hadn't been for Arthur, his his gas pedal was always all the way down. And so he said, thank goodness Arthur periodically slowed me down. In this case, though, it sounds like it, you were really getting held back. Arthur didn't hold Bernie well, back. Well, I, I, I was being held back because, you know, people have different egos and different um, different things that are important to them at different times in their life. And I I was just ready to develop and, and, and to grow. And I, I didn't have a specific number in mind, but I just knew I wanted to develop more restaurants. And I made mistakes along the way. I'm not going to say I didn't. And there's things that you have no control over that you don't foresee in the economy, a 9-11, a financial crisis, a a market that struggles. I mean, there's things that happen, and you're not always prepped for it. But, again, I was, you know, the captain of my own destiny, and so whatever I laid out for myself, I was going to fix if I created a problem. And I think in the end it, it made me stronger because when I did get myself into a pickle in a market, I said, how am I going to get myself out? Well, I'm going to upgrade my stores. I'm going to buy more stores. I'm going to close these stores. I'm, you know, I, I would set out a strategy for how I was going to tackle whatever situation came my way. And by the way, it was interesting earlier you had said you convinced Denny's. I did. Uh, and and uh, it sounded to me like you were not just going to convince them. You were going to just wear them down. Well, um, that's, yeah. So I would call frequently, um, frequently please sell us a store in San Antonio. And and I got no for a long time, and they finally caved in, and and we got to buy one. And this this one in particular store I had wanted, and they wouldn't sell it, and they wouldn't sell it. But 25 years later, Lee, they sold it to me. So I waited 25 (laughs) years for that store, but I finally got it. Well, that's perseverance, Dawn. And, And by the way, we know that that's one of the major attributes to being an entrepreneur or to being really good at anything. You just gotta stick to it. It doesn't come overnight. And talk about just a little bit here, and we're gonna come back on the other side and talk about this too. Uh, I often think that sometimes the wage gap between men and women, yeah, there's sexism, there's no doubt, and it's it's rampant. But I also think that the women I've met, who when they come to me and say, "Well, how do I go get a, way, or a raise?" and I go, "You got to go fight for one," and they go, "No, I don't. I don't. Uh, you know, I'm just not comfortable doing that." And then, of course, the, the, the male boss, well, he's never going to lean down and give that woman the raise. And do you think there, that a part of the wage gap has to do with women not being trained from the ground up? And this is sexist, too. I mean, the, the, mm-hmm. you know, human beings are taught to fight for things, and we're teaching our boys to fight, but we're not teaching our girls to fight for a raise. Do you find that happens as a boss? Uh, no, but I'm in a different situation because I am a female, 
And I pay all my people in my company based upon performance, experience, job code. So we don't discriminate between gender. Right. But we're in a in the hospitality industry, which is uh, it's not like being an executive or being in higher management where you're competing with men. I mean, we have we actually have a higher percentage of women employees by a few percent than we do men, but we pay them fairly based upon what market they're working in, uh, what volume of restaurant they're managing, you know, various criteria. So we don't, like I said, discriminate between male and female. However, I have several friends who have come to me over the years that when they talk to me about their careers and what they're making, I have coached them and said, you know, unless you go in and say, this is unacceptable, now, I don't know what their male counterparts are making, but I know as a female what they were being paid was yep. below what, what they should have. And and I can tell you quite honestly, uh, one in particular p- person I coached got a $10,000 raise immediately and then went on to propel higher. Well, and that's great that you did that. And I think we all need to coach everyone that, you know, you just got to fight for what you believe in. And it doesn't matter what sex you are. It doesn't matter what race you are. It doesn't matter what, what sexual orientation you are. Fight. Fight and you'll have a much better chance of getting what you want. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories, Our American Dreamer series with Don LaFrieda. More after these messages. our American stories. We love asking people what their favorite music was, especially when they were young. And thus we come in with Barry Manilow, somebody that Don loved. And it looks like you did make it, Don. But then again, something tells me at 77 restaurants, you're not finished. Well, no, and it's it's already 78, so Uh um, definitely not finished, even though you just outed me as a fan which I totally am. So (laughs) thank you for that song, because I love him, and I've gotten to meet him twice, and it's been, um, it was really great to get to meet somebody that you enjoyed so much growing up. That is terrific. And let's talk about that. You're, you're, You're at 78 restaurants and going strong. What's your biggest problem uh, as it relates to running your business now, and maybe even two? Uh, hands down, staffing. Finding enough employees. The, I've passed on restaurants because I couldn't find enough help. And the last thing you want to do is build a restaurant and not be able to give great service. And I think that is my single biggest challenge today. I mean, we have a lot of other issues that are out there. Um, there's things we have control of and things we don't have control of. And this is just something that over the course of the last 10 years has just gotten horrific to deal with. And what are the principal problems within that? Could you break some of that down? Well, I think as we discussed earlier, everybody is hiring. Right. And I also think there's a fair amount of the population that doesn't have to work that when we were growing up, we were working at 16, 17, 18, 20, 22. There's a whole segment of kids, young adults, going to college, not having to work, 
um, there's a lot of factors, and there are a lot more jobs. And so, so what, do you, what do you do about that, Dawn? I mean, and, and what do you do to retain the people that you currently have? Well, that, that's really the key. But even, even when you do your best to retain them, that doesn't, always, that doesn't always work because people have different agendas. There's a lot of people that just want to earn a paycheck for a short amount of time to, oh, maybe get their down payment on their apartment and move on. I don't know. There's not the longevity that I saw growing up. There's not the commitment to your employer, to your job, to your customer. So, for instance, and and I don't want to generalize or say that everybody is like this, but, you know, we have more drugs in society than we had before. And I will call in people. I'll interview them. I will say, you know, can you pass a background check? Can you pass a drug test? Oh, yes, yes, yes. So we hire them because we need bodies. We need to get people in training. And then many, many, many times they fail the drug test. So I think that's something that has plagued uh, our industry. Yep. For a long time. And by the way, Dawn, it's not just your industry. The chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff put out a report two years ago that said 75% of American males don't qualify to enter the military because of felonies and inability to simply pass the basic physical and or test and drug tests. So it's not just you that's facing that particular problem, particularly with males, but they even said that it was a growing factor with the females too. Yeah, oh, it's a, pro- it's a problem, and I, I believe that dilutes the workforce for us. I think every new building on every new corner dilutes the workforce. I think kids that don't have to work, um, and, and I'm happy for them, uh, dilutes the workforce. It, it doesn't leave us a lot to choose from. And in, in the olden days, back when I was young, you had to, I had to wait in line six months for my job at Denny's. Today you run an ad, and you... You might get somebody that says they'll come in for an interview, and you you got to hope that they show because a lot of times they'll schedule an interview and not even show. Yeah, that's not a good way to to to, to make an impression on your future boss. Well, Don. you know it's not, but again, they know that tomorrow there's a help wanted sign on every corner. It's so it's so true. How many people do you employ right now? Close Don? to three thousand. Oh my goodness, that's incredible. It's a lot, and in the, in the restaurant industry, it has high turnover with servers and cooks, and so we really end up turning about 7,500 in a year. Oh, just keeping track of that has got to be something. It's a lot. I'm, I'm so grateful I have wonderful people to help me do all that. And when, but, what you know, you... When, you, when you collect them along the way, a few each year, <laughs> yep. you know, you kind of pace yourself and, and you grow into it. That's so true. And what do you do for your own work-life balance, Dawn? What do you and your partner do? And uh, just talk to us a bit about that. Uh, you know, our big thing is dining out, traveling, theater, concerts, um, and attending an awful lot of basketball games. Good for you. That, that, that comes with 13-year-old twin boys. Now, you're, we, we did a special on Tim Duncan's retirement yeah, because what a remarkable human being! Right? And yeah, he's he's a he's a great guy. Uh, my kids were just recently at a birthday party, and uh, his children were at the same party, and uh, he was shooting free throws with my kids. They thought, you know, they'd gone to heaven. 
Well, yeah, I, I would have gone to heaven, too. That would be a dream of mine. Next time there's a sh- shot at that, Dawn, give us a buzz. I'll be in San Antonio in a New York minute. I was conceived in San Antonio at Lackland wow. Air Force Base, wow. and I was born at Sampson Air Force Base in Syracuse. So I, I, mean, I tracked so it back. Been around. Yeah, I, been I figured it out. Well, um, I think Tim Duncan is just a phenomenal athlete, a phenomenal human being, gives back to the community, has the right spirit about the sport, about community, about just everything. He's a, a great individual. Well, and I love the way he retired. He didn't have one of these Kobe Bryant, you know, and this is no slam on Kobe. I love Kobe too. Everyone's different. But he just wrote a little note saying, I'm not playing anymore. And they had to like almost pull him into like just a, a goodbye dinner um, because he just, he's just such a humble guy the way he played and you know the way he lives. It's not about Timmy Duncan. No, he's very humble and he always gives credit to others and lets Let's everybody be part of the game, even yeah. if he can make the shot. You bet. And, and Don, I had to tell you a quick story because I was doing a, a, some poll and dial testing uh, for, uh, for Frank Luntz, who was poll and dial testing minimum wage and mm-hmm. the, the minimum wage issue, which I'll ask you about in a second. Um, but I said, look, I, I said, Frank, let me just tell a story to this group of folks. And it was half Republican, half Democrat. And all I did was come in and tell a very simple story. I told your story. And I said that a minimum wage job is an entry-level job to a future and a life mm-hmm. where you learn about work and you learn about the dignity of work and then pretty soon you can save enough money to get a, uh, get a store of your own and then maybe get a couple more. And this is the story of franchising in America, Dawn. It's amazing that 20% of the American workforce works under this, this idea called franchising. And by the way, you've made a full bet on Denny's. Most people diversify their portfolio as they start to grow. But you said, no, I'm, I'm, a, Denny's, I'm right. a Denny's girl. That's that. Talk about that. Talk about this franchising world and the minimum wage, if you don't mind. Absolutely. So uh, I, I do get offers to, um, to diversify pr- probably every day. Every restaurant concept, uh, any kind of franchising opportunity out there. But I've been very successful with Denny's. I have a fleet of restaurants that I understand the brand inside and out. I know how to troubleshoot the problems. I, I, you know, I know it and I understand it and I love it. And I have a lot of friends I've known who who they've done other concepts and it, it detracts from what they have that is really making them live well. Yeah. There, there are some that do really great in other concepts, but I just never wanted to take my focus off Denny's. I just thought, you know what, I'm set, I'm set up to grow. My team knows Denny's. We can just take this and we can go. And, and people often ask me also, well, why don't you start your own restaurant? Why don't you do your own concept? You could, you know, wouldn't have to pay all those royalties and advertising fees. And I said, yeah, you know, you're right about that, but maybe I'd only have 10 restaurants because I'd have to be thinking about the decor and the sign and the menu and the recipes and the uniforms and what's my building going to look like and architects. And, you know, with franchising, you can just develop at a faster pace because a lot of that's done for you in the fees that you pay. And, yeah. and you get a proven concept. If I hang the name Dawn's up, who knows how many people will come? There's 97% brand awareness of a Denny sign, and and I think that's powerful. And um, we serve everybody, and and I like that. I, er, anybody can go to Denny's. It's not you. You can be rich. You can be poor. There's something there for everybody, and I like that about my brand. Yep, it's so true. And then you get to focus on operations and execution 
and do what you know best. And these big national branders are, are coming in there and they have the leverage to do what they do. And it's been such a terrific model. I think it's created more wealth for the ordinary American. I think, I think it's fantastic. And, you know, I, I, I've, I've, I've been happy having one brand. And, you know, I, I sometimes I say, well, how many restaurants does one girl need? And, well, as many as, you know, I can possibly get. <laughs> but not at a cost of your quality of life. And do you want to go learn something new? Do you want to take time away from your existing operation to go pay attention to another brand. And I just didn't want to do that. Well, you and your partner, it sounds like, have a great life. And my goodness, you don't want to miss a Spurs game because you have another brand. Now, that would be the end for me, Dawn. Right, uh, or a Barry Manilow concert. Or a Barry Manilow concert. Well, Dawn, thanks so much for joining us for the hour. Dawn LaFrieda, a part of our American Dreamers story, started with nothing as a young kid, started working at the age of 10, and now owns 77 Denny's restaurants and employs 3,000 people. Thanks so much, Dawn, for joining us. Great to be here. Appreciate the hour you gave me. You betcha. And you can hear all of what we do at OurAmericanNetwork.org. That's OurAmericanNetwork.org.